Well, if you weren't here last week, I just wanted to, sh- to say again how thrilling and humbling it is uh, to be the pastor here at Life's Journey. And I don't take it lightly, I promise you that. Uh, the only thing that you guys will probably have to help me with is uh, probably trying to rein me in a little bit. I'm, I'm pretty fired up and excited. And so uh, I, have, I have a tough time with patience. Just ask my wife that. So uh, y'all may have to help me a little bit with some patience and, and to take my time here. But um, I want to I take ground from the enemy in Huntsville tonight, yeah. ASAP, right? <laughs> so I'm just, um, I'm so excited about the gospel and the power of the gospel uh, that I, I just can't sit still. So uh, y'all may have to help me sit still for a little while uh, while we... Uh, grow together and make disciples together and get to know each other. And so, uh, like I said last week, my plan is for the first several months here is to just really get to know everybody at Life's Journey. And so uh, that's something that you guys will probably have to be patient with me on. I'm going to try to work my way around through everybody and either take you guys to lunch or out to coffee or invite you guys over to the house, uh, uh, things of that nature. I will try to get to every person. That'll take me probably three or four months, I'm guessing. So, uh, But I just want to hear your heart for Christ and your heart for Huntsville and life's journey uh, and let you hear mine. So uh, just know that that's coming. If I haven't called you or emailed you yet, I will. I'm, I'm working my way through everybody, so uh, just be prepared for that. So uh, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 1 today. If you guys want to go ahead and turn there, Galatians chapter 1. Also, you can go to ljc.life. You can follow along with the sermon. There's some sermon notes there if you want to do that. Uh, but we're going to be in Galatians chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 6 through 12, if you want to go there now. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. And I'll set the scene a little bit for us before we read. Uh, So let me do that now. So the Christians in Galatia are in big trouble. Big trouble. And how do we know that? We know that because all of Paul's letters begin the same way. All of them. They begin with an introduction, a greeting, and then words of thanksgiving. They all start that way, except for this one. This is the only one that doesn't. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul skips his customary words of thanksgiving and jumps right into the meat and potatoes. Why? Because Paul's not playing around. Now, that's not to say he's playing around in any of his other letters. But this is an extremely serious issue. This is a central issue for Paul. And so he just skips words of thanksgiving and jumps right in. This issue that he's addressing was jeopardizing the church of God in Galatia. And it still is jeopardizing the church today, which is probably why this letter made it into the Bible. So let's read it together. This is Galatians chapter 1, 6 through 12. Paul says this. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. 
Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for these precious and powerful words. We pray by your Spirit we would be changed by them right now. That we wouldn't be just checking any boxes this evening or going through the motions, but that would be, we would be truly changed by you, by your words, and by your love. Help us find the true gospel tonight and cling to it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what is the problem Paul is tackling here? He said it six times just in these few verses. The problem he's addressing is the gospel. The Christians in Galatia are losing their grip on the gospel of grace, and they're turning to works. They have abandoned grace and exchanged it for a behavior-based righteousness. This is a warning to all of us. This is a trap that any of us can fall into. And so Paul reveals four critical truths here to help the Galatians and to help you and me. Here are the four truths. Paul, Paul reveals the trap, who sets the trap, how we avoid the trap, and what breaks the trap. The trap, who sets the trap, how we avoid the trap, and what breaks the trap. Okay, so number one is the trap. Paul reveals it in verse 6. Verse 6. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So do you see it there? They are deserting the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This is something that is very easy for all of us to do. To abandon the gospel. To believe that Jesus might be able to save us, but that we are able to keep us. We also can easily abandon grace for a works-based righteousness. We believe the true gospel for salvation and then believe a false gospel for sanctification. We run to the cross to become a Christian, but then we run to the law to stay a Christian. And by the law, I mean all the moral commands of the Bible. That's Old Testament and New Testament. Okay, so when I say the word law, that's what I'm talking about. All the moral commands. We run to the cross for salvation, and then we run to moral commands to stay a Christian. Paul here is fighting for the true gospel. He is battling against the forces of religion who try and distort it. 
And what Paul battled in his day and the reformers battled in their day, we must battle in ours. Why? Because the human heart is so attracted and drawn to works righteousness that if we don't battle for the gospel of grace, we will lose it in just one generation, specifically in America. We're already losing it. Now, you might be sitting there wondering, you keep saying the word gospel. What do you mean by that? (laughs) What does the gospel actually mean? Well, if you were here last week, you saw that Paul gives us the explicit gospel in a really super clear way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You don't have to go there now, but you can go there later if you'd like. That whole chapter is awesome, by the way. A really, really great chapter, profound, I think, is 1 Corinthians 15. But in that chapter, Paul gives us the explicit gospel, okay? And so for Paul, the gospel contains two points in that chapter, okay? The first point is, Jesus died for our sins and was buried. That's one. Number two, Jesus was resurrected and appeared to many. And that's it. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. That's Paul's summary of the gospel, right? Jesus died for our sins and was buried. Jesus was resurrected and appeared to many. So, what the gospel is not, the gospel is not about us and what we should be doing. The gospel is about Jesus and what he has done. Now, scholars, like I said last week, consider the word gospel an accordion word, right? It's an accordion word. It can be stretched and it can be condensed and still retain its meaning. So what Paul does a lot in his letters is he will refer to the gospel in a way that is kind of including, yes, the death and resurrection of Christ, but then he's also including all of the implications of the death and resurrection of Christ in the word, Okay, he'll do that a lot. All right, so let me give you some examples of that. So uh, when, we, when we hear the truth that Jesus died for our sins, one thing that implies is that we're probably more sinful than we realize. Why? Well, because in order to save us, It required the death of God. That's pretty extreme, don't you think? (laughs) And so we must be worse off than we thought (laughs) if it required the death of God to save us, right? So that's an implication of the gospel. Another one is when we hear the truth that Jesus died for our sins, that must also mean that we're more loved than we thought. God doesn't just love us in some kind of cutesy, feel-good way. God loves us with a fire that burns so hot it would melt the universe if he let it. Our God is a God that didn't just declare he loves us, but he put his money where his mouth is, and he showed us 
that he loves us. First John says, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's love. So yeah, on one hand, we might be worse off than we thought. We're more sinful than we realize, but we're also more loved than we could ever fathom. These are just two examples of the implications of the gospel. So the gospel is a big word. It holds a lot of weight to it. It can mean a lot of really cool things, really important things, not only for the non-Christian, but for the Christian too. And that's why Paul is fighting so hard for it. That's why I will fight so hard for it. That's why I pray life's journey will fight really hard for it. It's really, really, really important. It's really, really, really good news for both the Christian and the non-Christian. And so Paul is using intense language here. Y'all get that? I mean, he's pretty intense. He's kind of an intense guy anyway, but he's really using intense language here for this reason. The gospel's too important to mess around with. He is trying to get across this urgent message. Christians are not supposed to enter God's kingdom by the gospel and then abandoned it for a behavior-based religion. No. Grace is how we enter the kingdom of God. And grace is how we live in the kingdom of God. But this is so hard for us. It's hard for me, I admit. It's hard. The message of Galatians is difficult for us because it cuts against the grain of our culture and it cuts against the grain of our prideful hearts. It's hard to hear that we have nothing to offer God. That hurts a little bit, doesn't it? It hurts. The message of grace is offensive and insulting, and Paul knows it. That's why he's so harsh here to start the letter. Now that we're Christians, we don't need a Savior and Lord anymore, right? We can be our own saviors and our own lords. We're in control now. We can work for our own righteousness. And that's the trap. Okay, point number two. Who sets this trap? Look at verse 7. Verse 7, Paul says, Evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, later on in Galatians, uh, Paul will list some other reasons uh, Christians fall into this trap, but right here, he, his reason is false teaching. Bad preachers is the reason, right? Now, the word pervert here in verse 7, I think the ESV says distort uh, there in verse 7. Uh, in Greek, literally means to reverse, to reverse. So rather than, in English, thinking about distorting the gospel, really what these teachers were doing were reversing the gospel. They're reversing it. So Paul is saying here that it's, it's not just the content of the gospel that's important, but the order of the content of the gospel that makes all the difference. The true gospel says, 
I am accepted by God in Christ. Therefore, I obey. Okay, so you catch that? I'm accepted by God in Christ. Therefore, I obey him. The false gospel reverses the order. It's the same content, but reverses it. And instead says, I obey God. Therefore, he accepts me. I obey God. Therefore, he accepts me. And for Paul, simply reversing the order of the gospel is a damnable offense. Look at verses 8 through 9. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let them be under God's curse, exclamation mark. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse, exclamation mark. Paul essentially says the exact same thing. Two sentences in a row. I have to do that to my kids sometimes so that they get it. Apparently, Paul thinks Christians need it said twice in a row. (laughs) So we get it too. Paul curses all teachers throughout the world and in heaven above who reverse the gospel. Paul is so passionate about this for multiple reasons. But a couple reasons are, A, he knows how easy it is for Christians to stray from the gospel of grace. It's just super simple for us to do that. And B, he knows it would be much easier for the preacher if he perverts and reverses the gospel. Much easier for the preacher. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's easy for preachers to pervert the gospel because that would make it easier to please people. A frankly quite depressing study by Preaching in Pulpit Digest revealed that 85% of sermons in America are man-centered. 85% are man-centered. What do they mean by man-centered? That means that the sermons are mostly about us and what we should be doing rather than about Christ and about what he has done. Right? They're mainly about us and what we should do rather than about Christ and what he has done. In other words, they're not about the gospel. 85% of sermons are not about the gospel. This is depressing, but it should not be surprising. Our consumeristic culture wants consumeristic sermons. And if you want to grow a big church, you have to give the consumers what they want. Paul knows men don't want to hear that they're sinners in need of a Savior. Men want to hear how God can help them live their best lives now. Martin Luther said, to speak against a man's wisdom, righteousness, religion, and strength is to reap his hate and persecution. 
That's exactly what Paul received for preaching the gospel. He was imprisoned, scorned, beaten, stoned, flogged, shipwrecked, and eventually executed. Men don't want a Lord. They want to be their own lords. Even Christians can tire of having a Lord. They would rather be the one in control. Okay, so point number three, how we avoid the trap. How can we get around this? How do we know that our gospel that we're believing is the true gospel and not just one we think is true or feel is true, but that actually is true? Well, in these verses, Paul lays down a plumb line for judging all truth claims, all truth claims, including our own. uh, He reveals it there in verses 11 through 12, 11 through 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Amazingly, Paul is saying that even his authority as an apostle does not give him the right to change the gospel one iota. Also, amazingly, Paul is telling us that we have something so powerful, so profound, as to give us the ability to judge angels and even the apostles themselves. Did you catch it in verse 12? Verse 12, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which is just another way of saying the Bible. The Bible is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The church and the Christian and the preacher must be evaluated with this. This is our plumb line. The church, the Christian, and the preacher must be evaluated with the biblical gospel. So let's do that right now, shall we? Let's do it. Here are two extremely common false gospels taught in pulpits all around America today. Let's judge them by Scripture, shall we? Number one, uh, these churches say that you are saved through your surrender to Christ and your moral behavior. Your surrender to Christ and your moral behavior. People in these churches are often challenged to accept Jesus into your heart. And to surrender your life to Jesus. Now, this sounds very biblical. But in reality, it rejects the grace first principle of the gospel. See, it it reverses the order. Paul writes in Romans 3, 9 through 10, he says, All men... Both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. Paul also writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, The person without the Spirit does not accept 
the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. I hate to break it to you, but you did not accept Jesus. You were his enemy. So was I. You were not seeking God. You were seeking to be your own God. No, you didn't accept Jesus. Jesus accepted you. You did not surrender your life for him. He surrendered his life for you. You did not seek Christ. Christ sought you. Don't you see how this false gospel, it's tricky, but don't you see how it puts all the pressure on you to get your beliefs and your behavior right in order to be saved? And it puts all the pressure on you to keep your beliefs and your behavior right to stay saved. Rather than relying on amazing grace, this view relies on amazing works. Okay, so that's one example. A second example of a very common false gospel preached. This is often found in mainline denominations today. Is this. It says, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are a loving and good person. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are a loving and good person. In these churches, people are taught that all good people will find God. It doesn't matter what their worldview is. It doesn't matter what their religion is. If they're good people, they'll find God. But here's two big problems with that teaching. Number one, there are no good people. There are none. Jesus said in Luke 18, 19, don't you know that no one is good except God alone? And number two, it teaches good works are enough to find God. But Paul teaches in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, he says, and I quote, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But you see, on this false view, saved people have every right to boast. They have every right to be proud. Why? Because they've earned it, they've earned their reward. But Scripture says that even the faith that you placed in Christ was itself a gift from God and was not your own. So that no one can boast. No one. Okay, and that leads us to the last point, number four. What breaks the trap? What just 
demolishes it. Paul shows us in verse 6. Verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. The one. The one. The gospel is not just a set of propositions. It's not a math equation. The gospel is a person. The one whom the propositions are about. In a very real sense, Jesus is the gospel. And when you desert the gospel, you are deserting a person, not a proposition. You are rejecting the God who became a carpenter. The one who lived a suffering and lonely life and died an agonizing death for you, for your sins on your behalf. Out of his great love for you. And when you, even as a Christian, rely on yourself and your works to get you through, you are rejecting Christ and his works. The enemy tells you that, yeah, Jesus can save you, but you can keep you. But the gospel says that Jesus saves you and Jesus keeps you. There is nothing you can do to make Jesus love you more. And there is nothing you can do to make Jesus love you less. His love for you has absolutely nothing to do with you. Jesus loves you because he loves you. Just because he loves you. It has nothing to do with you or your behavior. If you're a Christian who gave $50,000 to charity last year, you are no more loved by Christ than the Christian who gave $10 last year. If you are a Christian who struggles to read the Bible once a month, you are no less loved by Christ than the Christian who's read the Bible every day for a decade. That's just not how his love works. It's unending, steadfast, and unconditional. Here's an important danger for the Christian, a very important danger to understand. It's so damaging. It was damaging to my own life, and I've seen it in counseling session after counseling session, how damaging this can be to the Christian. Here it is. If you think God loves you to the degree that you work for him, you will only love God to the degree that he works for you. Your relationship with God will only be transactional. It'll be like a boss-employee relationship. You scratch God's back and he scratches yours. 
I do good works for Jesus, and then he blesses me. But that's not the gospel. That's the anti-gospel. And it will eventually turn God's law into something you hate. It will become a drudgery. But the true gospel says you were an enemy of God, dead set against him. And this gracious God, rather than sentencing you to death, sentenced himself to death on your behalf. Not just so he could pardon you, but so he could adopt you into his family. This God turned his enemies into his sons and his daughters. And when you get the gospel, you get him. You get the person. You get the king who became a slave to save you. Don't you see? Jesus is the treasure of Christianity. Jesus is Christianity. The Christian life is simply about knowing and loving Him, which will in turn break the trap of works righteousness in you. How? Here's how. Because His love for you will ironically lead to a deep desire for good works in you. His love and His grace won't make you lazy. Not at all. The love of Christ will lead you to work harder for Him than ever before. But you will do so because of love, not duty. Love is what your desires will be built upon, not religious duty. Not because you're trying to earn brownie points with God or earn righteousness or earn blessings. The love of Christ will overwhelm you to the extent where all of that becomes irrelevant. Then Paul say, I count it all as dung compared to Christ. It's all dung compared to him. If you just give me him, I'll be fine. I don't need anything else. Jesus is my treasure. He is what I want. And I will obey him just because I love him and he loves me. And I want to see his love spread to every corner of the earth. His love and grace then turns the law from a drudgery into a joy. As the old hymn says, 
how long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, toiled without success, but to see the law by love fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transformed a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray together. Jesus, what a Savior. What a King. What a Lord. What a friend you are. You have turned your enemies into your children. And you have turned moral duties into moral choices. Choices we delight in. Because we know that you delight in us regardless of our moral choices. What a God and what a gospel we have. Forgive us, Lord, for being suckered by false gospels, by a works-based righteousness. And Lord, it's made us so heavy. It's been so heavy on us. It has weighed us down. But thank you, Lord, for bringing us freedom through your blood and through your suffering. Thank you for taking the weight off of us and putting it on yourself. Lord, please help us delight in that freedom. Help us walk in that freedom. Help us rest and enjoy that freedom. We've placed all these unneeded burdens on our walk with you. And you have offered us a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. Help us to take it. Give us your spirit. Remind us of your deep love and your sacrifice. Bring us back to the cross, Lord, every time we stray from it so that we might gaze, gaze upon you and delight in you and take our joy and meaning and purpose and happiness from you and nothing else and find the true joy and true freedom that we were made for. Help us not leave here the same way that we came in. Help us leave here basking in your love and your grace and clinging to the true gospel. And Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.